0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading through verse 22 this morning. The word of the Lord. When you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. But the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Therefore I command you to do this. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the letter of James. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. Let me say something very important to you, even before I read this portion of God's word in your hearing. I've discovered that many people including a few pastors, misunderstand this passage because they miss who it's written about and who it's written for. Turns out those are two different groups of people. This is an oracle that James is giving about non-Christians. These words are not to be applied directly to the people in the church. But the message about this oracle of woe to these non-Christians is intended to bring comfort to the Christians to whom he is writing. I'll say more about that in this morning's sermon. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. The word of our God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Here is a strikingly honest confession. Asaph in Psalm 73 writes this But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you hear what Asaph is saying? Out of a desire for a more prosperous life, a life with fewer struggles and richer comforts, Asaph had almost compromised his relationship with the Lord he then goes on to warn us against stumbling over this very obstacle in our own lives. That's what James is doing in this morning's passage as well. It turns out that he who dies with the most toys doesn't actually win. Now, we all know that's true. But sometimes we're tempted to forget that this is so. In fact, in America, we have kind of a strange love-hate relationship with the extremely rich. Uh, On the one hand, politicians routinely promise that they are going to increase taxes on the rich in order to buy votes from other people. But that's a standard trope in American politics. And yet on the other hand, the really uber-rich, the multi-billionaires in our culture, become really celebrities. They are very much treated that way. As though the fact that if you're worth 40, 50, 60, 100 billion dollars, that means what you have to say on almost any topic is worth listening to. Now, in fairness, uh, many of America's billionaires have lived extraordinary lives. I mean, just think of Elon Musk. He founded PayPal. He founded uh, SpaceX. He founded SolarCity, and he has founded Tesla. So, he, by any accounts, he's a remarkable human being. Nevertheless, I want to suggest that if Elon Musk had devoted his really quite immense talents to becoming a world-class biologist or physicist, he would not have more than a hundred million followers around the world today following him on social media. The, the reason why Elon Musk has so many followers and gets so much attention is directly related to the fact that he is the richest man in the world. Have you ever thought what it might mean for you if you were to become that rich? I suspect that most of us have, at least in a fleeting moment at one point or another in our lives. And then we say to ourselves, you know what? I don't really want to be a billionaire or a hundred billionaire or whatever some of these men are worth today and women. What we say is, is I just want to be comfortably affluent, to have enough for all my needs and just a little bit more so that I could have a lot of confidence that from now to the day I die, I could live in a degree of financial freedom and security and comfort. Well, we're not the first people in history to think like that. Indeed, people commonly rearrange their lives to move out of financial hardship and towards something like financial security and even financial comfort. And in principle, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's not as though pursuing a Uh, poverty is somehow an intrinsic virtue or something. God is calling you to pursue productive lives, and for some of you, that's going to mean that you're going to become reasonably affluent, particularly here in North America. What we have to do, though, is consider the cost. What are we giving up in pursuit of this financial security and comfort? And are we spending our lives merely for our own pleasure Or are we investing them to make a difference for good in the world, a difference for the sake of the kingdom of God, a difference that will last forever? See, danger comes our way if we imagine that we're paying too high a price for following Jesus, particularly following Jesus with so much zeal. And danger comes our way when we fix our eyes too much on those things of this world that are passing away rather than on a kingdom that will endure forever. When we begin to surrender the solid joys and lasting treasure that none but Zion's children know. James is writing to cut off that danger at its very source, and he does so with three intertwined points. As you consider the wealthy, the comfortable, and the powerful of this world those who are enjoying the passing pleasures of sin and who are not following Jesus Christ, don't envy them, don't imitate them, and don't give up the faith. I think Asaph would have approved of that message. As you consider the wealthy, the powerful, the connected of this world, the, the movers and shakers who have those positions and yet are not following Jesus Christ, Don't envy them, don't imitate them, and don't give up the faith. Before we consider these three points together, we need to make sure that we understand the type of genre that James is writing in. Boy, that's something you don't hear a lot in a sermon. Uh, But the problem is, is James is using a particular prophetic genre that's common in the Old Testament, but we do not use it all in the modern West. And therefore, we can be tempted to totally misunderstand what he's saying. As though he's writing to the church and he's kind of beating them with a whip going, you know, those of you who are doing well in the church, you know, wail and how, you're, you're under God's judgment. But that is not what he is doing at all. James is writing an oracle of woe. Specifically, this is an oracle of woe, which is about someone other than the people to whom he is writing. As I mentioned, James is continuing a practice that's quite common in the Old Testament, particularly among the prophets. We just don't write that way in modern American English. So let me give you just a few examples from the Old Testament so you can see how this fits together. Uh, There's actually a whole string of oracles like this in the book of Amos. For example, in Amos chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we read this. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. So Tyre is this very wealthy trading city state on the Mediterranean coast north of Israel. And Amos is writing an oracle of judgment against them, a very severe judgment against them. But you realize Amos isn't writing a letter and sending it to the king of Tyre and saying, when you read this to all your people, God has a warning for you. The woe is about Tyre, but the message is going to the people of God, that is to Israel, for their benefit, to teach them something. Likewise, um, Numbers twenty-one twenty-nine reads this. Woe to you, Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemish. Now see, in this literary device, it sounds like Moses is addressing Moab. But as you all know, Moses wasn't writing the Pentateuch and sending it to Moab. He was writing the Pentateuch for the people of God before they go in to the promised land. It's a message about one people for another people. In the same way, Zephaniah writes... Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And once again, this is an oracle of woe against the Philistines. But Zephaniah is not sending this message to the Philistines. The message is going to Israel. It's an oracle of woe about one people, intended to be a message for another. So, why does God do that? Well, sometimes God announces these judgments that He's going to bring upon all these other nations to make clear that He is the king of the whole world, that He's in charge, He's governing everything. And also to make clear that He is going to conquer all of His and all of our enemies. It's actually the most common use of these sorts of oracles. There is, however, a second use, and it's the one that James is using when he picks up this genre here in this letter. He's pointing to the judgment, the final judgment he's going to bring upon his enemies to encourage us, the people of God, not to envy them and not to imitate them, right? that was the point with Asaph. Asaph said, you know, my foot had almost slipped until I went into the house of the Lord and I saw their end. And so James is saying, you know those rich people that have been persecuting you, right, to that specific group of uh, Christians, we'll talk about that in a moment, He's saying, I want to show you a glimpse of their final judgment and realize you have no reason to envy them at all. The judgment announced in these verses falls upon those who are outside the church. It falls upon those who will be condemned in the final judgment. The message, however, is very much intended for each and every one of us. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire." You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The people whom James is writing to are Christians. They're Jewish Christians who've been driven out of their homelands in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas of Judea. They've been driven out primarily by the rich, the powerful, the affluent, uh, the Sanhedrin, the the religious rulers in Judea. The chief promoters of this persecution were, in fact, the wealthy and powerful. They were being persecuted by or at the urging of Israel's ruling class. You might recall that back in James chapter 2, James asked this question. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Right? So James has already been talking about this subject with them. Right? That these wealthy people were the ones that were harassing them. And I want you to realize he's not just doing this as a hypothetical or a general idea. You know, rich people in general persecute believers. That is not what he's doing. He has a very specific suffering in mind that these wealthy and powerful Jews are behind their persecution because they have come to believe in the Jewish Messiah. Uh, There are at least two temptations that believers face when confronted with severe hardship from such persecution. First, we can be tempted to strike back. They're going to hurt us, we're going to hurt them. By the way, this is the whole idea of the Jewish zealots at the time of Christ. They they were going to kill and stab and do whatever was necessary to throw off the Roman rule. And so a temptation that Christians will have, just like other people, we're not immune to temptation, throughout history is when we are attacked, lash back. But we can't do that. After all, we serve a Lord who's told us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, um, to entrust Our vengeance, not into our own hands, but to the one who says vengeance is mine, I will repay. By the way, um, this passage is a reminder that God will do that very thing. He's announcing to us not vengeance is bad. He's announcing vengeance is mine. He's telling us that those who oppose his people and persecute his people and who hate God, God himself will bring uh, full vindication of us and full vengeance upon them in that final day. But second, we can actually become envious of those who seem to be enjoying ease and comfort in this present life and begin to play down those aspects of following Jesus, which our adversaries find most offensive. You know, I'm not going to give up all of being a Christian, but... I'll keep silent on those parts that are most under attack. That was a temptation then. It's a temptation today. We could even be tempted to fundamentally compromise what we know Jesus has called us to believe and to do in exchange for a bit more worldly prosperity in this present life. Now, while the situation the Jewish believers James is writing to is unique, it's distinct to them, temptation is common. This this is not just an issue for them. God has written these things down for our instruction. We have to deal with that temptation ourselves to compromise a bit here, give up a bit there so that our lives can be more comfortable and more prosperous in this present age. As I mentioned, uh, this is not a gentle account Rather, the Lord says to James, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Beloved, it is a dreadful thing for anybody to fall into the hands of the living God as an enemy of that living God. To discover at that last day that, in fact, this was their best life. And all they have to face for all eternity is the unending wrath of a completely holy and just God. James does not water that down. James is telling such people, see those beautiful clothes you have? And all the riches you once treasured? On that day, they will be rotted and moth-eaten. The very things that you treasured will consume your flesh. You imagined that you were storing up great wealth that would bring you unending pleasure, but what you were actually doing was heaping up wrath against the day of wrath. Now, it's very important to remind ourselves who James is writing to. James isn't writing against the rich simply because they are rich. There are many godly rich people in the Bible, from people that were extraordinarily wealthy, like Abraham and Job, to people that were actually quite affluent, like Boaz, right? But Boaz is not a wicked rich person. When he comes to his fields, he he greets his workers, the Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord be with you too. And it turns out he's willing to give up prestige and building his own empire in this world in order to marry a Moabite convert. James is not writing against rich people because they are rich. He is writing against a specific group of rich people, the powerful, the connected, who use their wealth to attack his people rather than to advance the kingdom of God. Beloved, they are not just wealthy, they are wicked. That's a critical thing to keep in mind. Isn't that what James is saying in verse 4? Look at verse 4 again with me. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These people are wicked. Uh, Just as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vindication, the the wages that have been robbed from these workers by fraud are crying out to the Lord of hosts, and he will hear, and he will bring a complete and perfect justice on that final day. Now when we catch a glimpse of people living in luxury and self-indulgence, and we forget their end, we can be tempted to want to have a taste of that life. As Asaph confessed, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and I discovered their end. That's what James is saying as well. As you consider the wealthy, the powerful, the connected of this age, those who are enjoying the passing pleasures of sin without following Jesus Christ, don't envy them. Instead, remember to consider their end. I think that's the major note that James is sounding. Nevertheless, I think he also has a pretty important minor note for us. Don't envy them but also don't imitate them. Obviously, Christians wouldn't want to imitate the wicked in persecuting the righteous or by exploiting other people. I doubt that's a big temptation for many of you. Christians are not going to be tempted to imitate the wicked by persecuting Christians or exploiting the weak. However, you may be tempted to imitate them by focusing more and more of your time, your talent, and your resources on this present age that is passing away that's going to give you short-term pleasures than upon the kingdom of God. I call this kind of having a cleaned-up version of worldliness. You know, it's worldliness without any of the disrespectful sorts of sins and obvious gross unjustness. But in fact, it's focusing on the wrong thing. And James is telling us, don't imitate them in that way. Look at verse 3 again with me. Verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I want you to consider that last sentence there. James does not say you have laid up treasure for the last days, like you're planning for the future. He says you have laid up treasure in the last days, because they're already in them. The last days come about when Christ, the Messiah, comes into this world. That's why John the Baptist and Jesus both begin their ministries proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The last days have crashed into history. And here are these affluent, well-educated Jewish people, these wicked rulers that are persecuting the Christians, And um, God has entrusted them with things. Well, with leadership positions, uh, with the temple and the sacrificial system, with the covenants, and with the very word of God. What privilege. And then when the Messiah comes, they kill him. See, when the Messiah comes, that's supposed to bring about an increased sense of urgency. that, That we would walk before God in holiness. And they say, nope, it might interfere with our lives. And so they put him to death. And instead of spending their riches to advance the kingdom of God, now that the church has become Catholic, it's designed to spread around the earth, they're indulging their own flesh. The last days are initiated with the coming of Jesus Christ, and they will be consummated when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Because Christ has come, there should be a fresh urgency for walking in holiness before the Lord and seeking to spread the good news of the victory of God in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Instead of doing that, they said, mine, let me indulge myself. Doug Moo puts it well. Those who are avidly accumulating wealth in his day are particularly sinful because they utterly disregard the demands made upon a people by the display of God's grace in Christ, and they are especially foolish because they ignore the signs of a rapidly approaching judgment. The Revised English Bible captures this well. You have piled up wealth in an age that is near at its close. Let me connect this urgency to a prophecy that Jesus made about Jerusalem, famously in the Olivet Discourse. We'll be talking about this in about a year, I guess, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew together. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be completely destroyed. You remember, right before he dies, he's going up the hill uh, with his disciples, and they go, Look at these beautiful stones. I mean, it's such a magnificent building. Jesus says, You see these stones? Not one of them will be left on another. And he prophesies the complete destruction of Jerusalem. And then he solemnly tells them, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Beloved, if you knew the real estate that you owned was going to be destroyed within 40 years, what would you do with it? Well, we actually know what the faithful Christians did, those who believed Jesus. They believed Jesus, You believe his word. They sold their land. They sold their land, they sold their houses, they took the money to give to the Lord by laying it at the feet of his ordained servants, the apostles. And the money was used to feed the poor, the money was used to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Now here's an important fact you need to keep in mind. That was not a recipe for the entire church. This doesn't happen in Philippi or Corinth or Galatia or anywhere else. No one hints that that's something people should be doing. And the reason is pretty obvious. Philippi is not going to be destroyed in 40 years, but Jerusalem is. Uh, That means you shouldn't take those texts from Acts and say, boy, it's bad for me to own a house or a business or have wealth or a 401k. That is not what's going on. Rather, if you believe Jesus that something's about to be destroyed, it makes sense to sell it to invest in a kingdom that will never pass away. So their situation was unique. It was not ours. We have no reason to believe that North Andover will be destroyed within the next 40 years. On the other hand, the principle still remains. Take that which is passing away and invest it in that which will remain. That, in fact, is the principle for the universal church. Beloved, we live in the last days. We ought to have a sense of urgency about the fact that Christ has come, that even more than the people of the Old Testament we want to see the gospel spread even to the ends of the earth. The Lord is calling us to seek first His kingdom and its righteousness. Beloved, the Lord is not calling us to lives of ease, He is calling us to lives that matter. Well, that's easy to state. The honest truth is, it's hard to put into practice or even to flesh out what it should look like in our lives. So I want to ask two questions. I'll warn you up front, they're challenging questions, at least for some of you. But I want to ask you two questions to help probe this matter together. How do we apply this where we're not imitating the unrighteous simply by having a cleaned-up version of worldliness where we, too, are focused on that which is passing away? Well, first of all, let me say that um, we are, in fact, called the prudently plan for the future. And in America... Um, that means saving up for your own retirement if you can do it. I mean, some of you are not going to be able to do that, but if you can, you ought to be putting aside money and saving and investing so that when you can no longer work, you'll have resources to pay for your medical bills and your other expenses of living. That is something that you should do. Now, here's the challenging question. How much is enough? When do you go... From prudently planning for the future to simply building bigger barns. (laughs) You know the parable of Jesus, right? Uh, Where's that line? I think that's a question we have to ask. How much is enough? At what point do I say, instead of giving 10 or 15% of my income a year to the Lord so that it'll be used for the spread of the kingdom of God, and 10 or 15% for savings and investment for the future... I shift that as I have enough and I give 20 or 30% of my wealth to the spread of the kingdom of God in this world and for the benefit of my brothers and sisters who are less um, blessed financially than I am. Well, I told you I have the question. I don't necessarily have the answer for you to figure it out. But I do want to say that it's important that you actually ask that question. That you don't simply assume that accumulating more and more wealth is in fact automatically a better thing. We've already said, he who dies with the most toys doesn't actually win. Second, a fairly high percentage of the people in this room are likely to accumulate quite a bit of wealth by the time that we're retired, between owning a house maybe, a 401k, some other investments, Um, and that's perfectly fine. But what if you die pretty quickly in retirement before you spend it? That's quite plausible, right? For, for many of us. Not all of us. But for many of us in this room, it's quite possible if we died early in retirement, we're going to have a pretty meaningfully large estate. Where's the money going to go? The young people might want to put their hands over their ears this morning before what I say next. Yeah, this is going to be hard to hear. It may not be the best thing for your parents to make you suddenly affluent simply because they die. That may not be the best choice. It may not be the best thing for your children, parents, to make them suddenly affluent just because you die. Now, the reality is, is you're almost certainly going to want to invest some of the wealth the Lord has put into your hands to bless those you love. Often that's going to be your family members, including children, if you have them. Right? That's a perfectly good thing to do. But it may not be the best thing for your children to do that, and it certainly may not be the best thing for the kingdom of God. Well, once again, I have the question. I don't have the answer for you. I actually think in this place, it's the question that's more important than the answer to our God. Are you asking one of two questions? Think about how these questions are different. Are you asking, what do I want to have to happen with my money when I die? Or are you asking what should happen to the Lord's money when I die? See, everything depends on whose money you think it is right now. Do do you see this as the Lord entrusting you with wealth? Yes, to bless you. You you know, if you come here for very many times, you know I'm going to say, God wants his people to enjoy many things in life. He throws lots of parties in the Old Testament. He's not opposed to you enjoying life, having nice houses, taking vacations, any of those things. But is it the Lord's money, or is it your money? That's the key question that we have to ask. And the answers we give to those questions should look very different from the answers of those who are living for a world that is passing away. Beloved, let me say it one more time. He who dies with the most toys doesn't actually win. So as you consider the wealthy, the powerful, and the comfortable of this world who are enjoying the passing pleasures of sin without following Jesus Christ, don't envy them, don't imitate them, and don't give up the faith. Right? You ought not to look at them and going they're prosperous, I need to change to become more like them. Don't envy them, don't imitate them, and don't give up the faith. As we come to this last point, I'd like you to consider just one verse with me. Turns out this is the most difficult verse in the passage to interpret. Uh, Thankfully, there are really only two options, but it is difficult, and that's verse 6. So please look at verse 6 with me. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who was not resisting you. So who is the righteous person that they're being accused of killing? And There are two options. One of the options is this is just righteous people in general. Um, But I have a problem with that, because the the passage uses a past tense. It's not, you're killing righteous people. If this was going to be a general sort of thing to say, uh, James, I think, would have written, you kill righteous people, or even, you kill the righteous, right, present tense. But he says, past tense, singular object, definite article, And that's why I side with those scholars, and it's really a split bag here, but I side with those scholars who think he's talking about Jesus Christ. You killed the righteous one. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. We actually see this um, sort of language throughout the Bible applied to Jesus. The rest of the scriptures, which uh, elsewhere... Explicitly refer to Jesus as the righteous one include this very famous passage from Peter's Pentecost sermon. At Pentecost, Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Then he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in terms of the Lord not resisting them, of course, the Lord is famous for being the meekest man on the face of the earth. Indeed, through all of history. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus willingly took abuse so that you would be justified, forgiven, and adopted into his family. Now here's the key point. If James is in fact talking about Jesus, that doesn't mean what he's saying is irrelevant for everyone else. Rather, the fact that he's talking about Jesus has profound implications for each and every one of God's people. Our suffering in the present age, see, that's the temptation. I'm suffering, I see someone that's doing well, I want to be like them. But this makes it clear that our suffering in the present age is not a mistake on our part. We must be doing something wrong, why else would I be suffering? Right? And it doesn't mean that God's plan has gone off track our suffering in the present age might be entirely for good. Jesus repeatedly warned us, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, Jesus tells us this in advance so we won't be surprised. And yet, often we're still surprised. But James's point is, You ought not to take that as something bad going on in your life. After all, Jesus, who suffered according to the will of God, was also exalted according to the will of God, and that's God's pattern for you as well. If you suffer with him, you will be exalted with him too. And thankfully, not all that Jesus has to say about our suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God is simply that people will persecute us. Jesus also said... but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, it's not that we're not supposed to envy the unrighteous people who seem to be getting by in this world but are doing so apart from following Jesus Christ. We're not to envy them simply because envying is bad. We're not to envy them because our end is so much better than theirs. So as you consider the wealth And those who hold it, as you consider the powerful and the comfortable of this world who are enjoying the passing pleasures of sin without following Jesus Christ, beloved, do not envy them, do not imitate imitate them, and do not give up the faith. For one day soon, the living God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and each and every one of you who by his grace are trusting in and loving Jesus will hear the Lord say this to you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to your reward. Amen.